0: And we are live for our 40th episode of Absolute AppSec. I am Ken Johnson at CK Tricky on Twitter, joined by my uh, co-host Seth Law at Seth Law on Twitter. Seth, say hi.
1: Hey, everybody. Welcome
0: back, uh,
1: I guess, right? Uh, this is our holiday episode, as as you can see between Ken and I and our festive hats this time around. Um, we just have to, we have, we have to have something right. Right. For this time of year, Ken, is that what's
0: going on? Yeah. You got to make it merry and festive, you know, like we met, yeah. we, we we weren't around in December of 2017. 17th. So we, yeah, we, we, we are around for this first, our first, this is our first holiday season as an, as a podcast.
1: Yeah. Yep. That's good. Um I did send out some t-shirts to some of the guests. I think they've already gotten them. I think Ken, you're still waiting on yours but um, they should be showing up soon enough. Uh, if you've been on before and you're listening, send me your physical address and a t-shirt size, and I'll, I'll make sure and put you on the list for the next batch as they go out. Um, I've already had a couple of people reach out, and we'll get them out to everybody as, as quickly as we can, uh, as reasonable over the, the holidays. Um, this week, uh, we don't have a guest. It's just Ken and I. Uh, we're just going to be kind of reprising what we've done over the last year, right? Uh, 40 episodes in and how things are going and then talk about current events. Uh, There's quite a bit. It seems like every week there's, you know, another breach or another five breaches or 10, whatever. Uh, Just like we talked about last week with, with Jerry, um, how it's, it just seems like the pace is increasing and we don't really know how much data is out there and how much is actually being exploited and who's exploiting it. So We'll talk a little bit about breaches. Um, I don't think we specifically have an AppSec minute that we defined for tonight. Uh, the I guess that we did have dropped off a little bit, so we'll um, we'll we'll just jump straight into it, right? Um, Ken, is there anything that you wanted to specifically start with before we go or before we go
0: into code reviews or anything else? Yeah, no, a couple couple things actually. For one, I got the T-shirts, so the t-shirts oh, you should... did. I totally awesome. forgot to mention that. And I just noticed your t-shirt and I thought I should say something to Seth. Um, and then the other part was for apps for the AppSec sec minute. Um, if you have something that you would like us to talk about, if you have just any, anything that you want us to kind of expand on from an educational standpoint for like, five minutes, you know, first five minutes of the podcast, send that to apps, uh, absolute app at gmail.com. Again, that's absolute app at gmail.com. Yeah. Uh, but so, yeah, no. So
1: maybe, yeah. Maybe if we're not going to jump into like if we don't have anything specific, let's, um, let's talk a little bit about kind of the vulnerabilities that we've been dealing with lately. Right. I'm not sure what I, I mean, you know, working for GitHub, right. Like, I'm not sure what sort of PRs or whatever you've been doing. Um, one of my things recently has been a lot. Of, I've been doing a lot of mobile apps, right? Um, and it's it's pretty interesting to play with data on like sensitive data being stored on a mobile application. Um, when you're first of all, I, I know when we've had Kevin Cody on before, we've talked about the difficulty in maintaining like jailbreaks when it comes to mobile application security testing that that is a and always will be a difficult thing especially on the ios side Uh, i am looking for recommendations on the android side i'm going to upgrade my my own um, instances so kevin or anybody if you're if you're listening and you've got a recommendation on one that works well let me know what it is Um, otherwise uh, from a data perspective one of the things that I constantly see in mobile applications is uh, backgrounded uh, screens that are not protected. Right, um, and this is a very—it's uh, a very easy fix, but it's a very common vulnerability. It seems like most mobile app developers don't necessarily think about what happens when the user presses the home screen and forgets that maybe if you're on a credit card entry page or a password change page or something like that, that the devices take, a, take an actual screenshot of the application and store it on disk. And that screenshot is retrievable if you happen to have physical device access. Uh, it's become more difficult on iOS to get that, that data back out. But the other thing is, is like you can see very quickly if you just double click on the home button in iOS, what is actually stored by the device. And as it launches the application or relaunches the application from the background, it uses that as the initial screenshot before as it loads the application and it tells the application to become active again. Uh, So I see it very common within um, like mobile, uh, what do I wanna say? Um, Like shopping applications for instance, right? You know, you put in a credit card number, you background the process, and all of a sudden your device is basically violating PCI because it's storing that in plain text inside of a JPEG or a PNG or something else. But it's very easy to fix. There's, you know, you can look online. Um, Anyway, it was just something that I've seen quite a bit in the last little bit. Ken, anything from you?
0: I had just a question because, like, the last time I – I mean, I haven't done mobile app stuff in a long, long time. Last time I looked was, I mean – We'll say it's 2018, probably like five years ago when I was doing like semi, you know, regular mobile app testing at that time with iOS, when you typed things in to sort of work on their auto uh, correction, they would just send, they would record what you've typed in, everything you've typed in into one giant blob uh, and then ship that off to their servers obviously when you're typing in like passwords and stuff like that and you know sensitive communication um like how do how do is that how how are apps disabling that i, I assume it's something you'd at that time you literally had to write your own keyboard that's why i'm asking and i assume it's not that way anymore i'm assuming ios uh gives you apis to like options to like limit your what you're typing getting stored by their autocorrect
1: Question. Yeah, they do. I mean, it, like there's some flags in Xcode now, if you're actually building a screen, um, if you throw something like secure text entry on there, um, you can enable or disable autocomplete from there. Or you can do it programmatically. Uh, there's APIs to do that. Um, we don't like, I, I definitely see it on like the credit card entry for passwords, uh, things of that nature um, but but most of the time developers just use whatever text field and what the defaults are, right? Um, so it, it still exists, that autocomplete issue. Um, it doesn't necessarily send it directly to Apple. It just does like local to what is in your autocomplete database already. Uh, so your phone or your device actually learns about you over time. So if you happen to type in like Ken all the time, right, it's going to default to that as the autocomplete, um, as opposed to, you know, something else. Right.
0: So is there, is this file retrievable? If, um, someone say picks up the iPhone, like they want to like, assuming apps don't do it right. They don't, you know, they just allow whatever you're typing in their app to be it stored. Is, Is that easily retrievable by someone who gets access to your phone if, if the phone is locked, no, right? Uh, that,
1: that is definitely one of the things that gets backed up with a device, if that database, that autocomplete database. Um, that's why you always want to encrypt your backups when it comes to iOS. Uh, if you're backing up to iCloud, it's encrypted by default. Uh, but if the device is locked, that's not going to be retrievable. Um, there's more and more trust uh, checks that go on when you're actually plugging a device into a new or a mobile device into a new Mac, right? You have to actually trust a device now. It doesn't just automatically, your, your iPhone doesn't automatically trust a device that you plug into it. And it won't allow it to retrieve anything or backup until you actually tell the phone that you want to trust a computer, right? Right. Uh, so ap- Apple's come a long way when it comes to that stuff. Uh, it's, not, it's not quite the Wild West it was that five years ago when we first started looking into it. But, you know, developers still make mistakes. We still see it quite often.
0: Speaking of uh, backups, I learned the value of backups uh, yesterday. As a matter of fact, Um, I needed an older version of Java 8 on my machine when I installed uh, Mojave's latest update. I believe that it installed Java 9. Um, And uh, so I removed the Java 9 references um, using, and this is like whatever, don't judge me. I use stack overflow or <laughs> on purpose. Like that. Is that, is that what <laughs> I know? I know I I did. I removed these folders anyways. Turns out they're pretty important. Um, so, uh, yeah, be aware if you're removing, uh, Java nine folders in Mojave, it actually, uh, like it actually seems to break things. So I'm not, I'm not I'm really figured out why or <clears throat> assuming it needs it, uh, Java nine, but, uh, that was a big problem. So anyways, everything's back to normal now, but still stuck with Java 9 for the for the moment. Okay. Yeah,
1: that's uh yeah. Well, you can you can roll back, right? You should be able to download that binary
0: and install both of them. Yeah, I can, I've done that. I've installed both of them, but yeah, I just It was an interesting it was an interesting uh, holy crap moment. So um but yeah, so I think we wanted to um roll on into, which thing do we want to talk about? We can talk about the Google hearings. We could talk about the breaches. We, we I mean, the Equifax, Equifax report came out. Uh, so. um,
1: let's start with the Google breach. I, I think that'll be an, an easy one. We, we had a discussion last week on breaches, right? Uh, you know, the tweet that I put out was, you know, if, if, we're notified of a breach and no one reports on it. Did it really happen? I, you know, I think Chris or a couple other people retweeted it. Um, but there's we we've reached that breach fatigue level. And I mean, Google's obviously the one, the biggest one that's come out this week. Do you know of any others uh, this week?
0: Not sure that I've seen anything. I I can't be sure. I'm. It's Tuesday, right? So if we're going by Monday. Yesterday. <laughs> I'm sure something's come out, but I haven't seen it. I haven't been on Twitter much and heads down.
1: Yeah. What you have a job? I don't I don't understand. It.
0: I know, right? I gotta actually earn a paycheck. What the heck? the breaches. Let me see what else is there.
1: Um I thought there was wasn't there a website that tracks data breaches?
0: Have you seen yes, that? But I'm also old and my memory it sucks. <laughs> And while you're while you're digging that up, I mean there's two different while you're digging that up I'll I'll mention that there's two different things to discuss. There's the Google Plus breach and then there's the Google hearings which uh basically they you know did not get discussed. So Congress had see had the CEO of Google for 3 hours and all they could do was really uh talk about essentially, you know, the 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 various search results that they've come across the Republicans um, that essentially were biased towards making them look bad. That that's, that's ultimately what it is. It's like accusing um, Google of having purposefully uh, listed conservative type um, content and positive, Uh, mentions of these Republican representatives um, just kind of shoving that down in their search algorithm. And that was really what they focused on for the three hours. However, things they didn't discuss were like um, the uh, uh, censored uh, Google engine that uh, Google is working on for China. I think it's like Project Dragonfly. They didn't talk about the breach. They didn't talk about And by the way, and yes, Google has gotten a bad rap lately for, uh, censoring and and especially on YouTube, demonetizing certain types of channels, um, which you don't hear a lot of people talk about. I mean, one of the, you know, me, I'm a, i am I like to shoot guns, right? I like to collect guns. That's, that's my thing. Um, and so pro second amendment, uh, gun channels, have been have been demonetized. You don't hear a lot about that, uh, so it's certainly a thing, sure. But there I feel like there were other things that, that could have been uh, discussed of some relevance and kind of digging in on like, you know, what what is Google up to? And yeah, I just feel like the breaches didn't go. Like it was well, a waste of opportunity, I guess is what I'm saying.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, it's interesting because they have had what Zuckerberg or you know, Facebook, you know, in front of them multiple times, and he's been in the you know UK as well, and they have grilled him on privacy data, right, and what what Facebook is actually doing with people's data, and I don't understand why Google gets a pass, uh, you know from from those same sorts of questions. Um, it seems like Google has maybe even more data than Facebook does when you start thinking about. Gmail and everything else that the the Google services that are provided, whereas Facebook's just social media information, right? I mean, I guess you've got, you know, Facebook and Instagram and their other services. uh, But it's not quite it doesn't doesn't necessarily descend to that same level. I I mean, if I'm looking at it from a strict, hey, I want to find out about someone perspective, Facebook is great but Google's even better because it has more than just social data.
0: It's got financial data. It's got bank information that's being sent to them. It's got everything else. Uh, Well, that's, I mean, that was, you know, that was part of what came out of the hearings is that they, you know, fully admit to what we already knew, which was storing the contents and being able to analyze the contents of your email discussions of your phone's serial number, um, your address, your location, your gender, your age, your, um, every, you know, basically collating that data, sorting that, that data and um, having it referenceable, right. And creating essentially uh, having the ability to basically know you, right. Um, I think that's the, that's the power that Google wields. Yeah, Um, Man, it's a bit, yeah, it's a, it's a bit scary. I mean, we've all, we all know this. Uh, We still use Google and they'd also mentioned data, data collection from Google home, which I, I know with Amazon echo, um, it's, you know, only when your voice is on. And I know we've talked about various slip-ups where the audio keeps recording. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, so it's a known thing. It's a known thing that this happens, at least with Echo. But I felt like, and I'd have to, to I don't want to speak out of turn here, but I felt like what came out of that was that there was a little bit more collected by Google. I could be wrong.
1: And it, it wouldn't surprise me, right? Like, I mean, they they had that those issues with, know, Google Maps, you think about everything that Google touches, right? You've got Google Home, but that's always tied into Nest as well, right? Which is cameras and, you know, everything else that Nest provides, um, tied to maps, tied to phone, you know, devices as you're walking into your house and knows where you're at, knows who you're talking to. It's, there's so much more information there and like relevant live data than there is with... than there really is with facebook even though facebook is is listening to a lot of that stuff I, I, we know that they are um it just seems like google should be you know held more accountable to that and i guess every every company should be i, I you know we get a little tinfoil hatty in the in the security industry when we talk about those things um but it's hard to make recommendations to you know family on, hey, guess what? You should go buy an Echo Dot or an Echo
0: because it's useful.
1: Right?
0: Yeah, and I forget. Um I'm, Yeah. I will actually I'm not gonna go down this road. So tell us more about the Google Plus breach. Okay.
1: Um Google Plus Breach, I when I started looking into it, let's see where's my link, we'll post it there. Um I got a whole bunch of links up from us talking. Um, it, it affects what, 50, it was like 50 million, 52.5 million users. Um, and it it has caused Google to announce that they're going to actually end of life Google Plus in April as opposed to August. I think the cost of running it is just too much. Uh, the thing that was interesting to me was they released that there was this breach but the only information that was included in the breach was name, email address, age, and occupation. Right? So it didn't even go to the level of credentials or password hashes. Um, I realized that it's PII uh, from a name and email address age perspective, but the severity doesn't necessarily look like it's that, it's as, it's as bad as something like the Experian breach, Right. Uh, so it, it it really makes me question what else they found when they were looking at it that they decided, all right, we're going to up the date of our closing for Google Plus because of what we what because of this breach.
0: Um, yeah. yeah, Google Plus Google Plus it, it should have been should have been end of EOL a long time ago. Um, I'm trying to catch up as well on something Jason posted here um, writable files, API, uh, duh, duh, duh. yeah. So, but yeah, I mean the data that's, I mean the data that was, that was harvested, wasn't super terrible, I guess. And honestly, it's funny cause I, well, figure, yeah. but did it talk to anything? Did they speak anything? Speak to any, I can't talk words tonight. Uh, me can't speak. um, did they discuss at all, like, how the, how the breach occurred?
1: Um, it was basically a, uh, they, they missed a, it, it was insecure direct object reference is what it, what it boils down to. So with one of their APIs, if you're a third party developers, you could actually look up information even though it wasn't shared publicly.
0: Oh, okay. Uh, so so based on email
1: like... address, you could pull that back. The thing, the, the other thing that's interesting is they they announced this, and then they also said, "Well, um, we went back through our logs, and no third party compromised our systems, right? So there was no evidence that it actually got breached. It was just, hey, there was this this flaw, and we fixed it, and the access only existed for six days. So like." This goes back to the breach for fatigue discussion that we had last week. It's like we're over-reporting and we're overestimating the severity of these breaches. I, like that's what it feels like. When I when I went and I read through the data that was in there, I was like, huh. All right. So you had a flaw, you fixed the flaw, and you reported a breach, even though you have no evidence that the breach actually happened. And you have good logs to actually determine whether or not it existed. Um, so I, I guess they're saying there's some there. There could be a case where they wouldn't have logged that information. Um,
0: otherwise, why even report the breach? And you, you know, understand? there's kind of yeah, I do. Um, and I'm by the way, I'm also trying to. Um, Garock, sort of this whole writable writable files API link that Jason um, pasted in here. Uh, give us a minute. Uh, well, I think I can save that as I still try to decipher what this is. Um, do you? I mean, are you familiar with the writable files API at all?
1: I'm not. That's not one that I've dealt with. I'll, okay. I'll pull it up. Jason Jason posted that in our uh, Slack channel. If you're not in there. Go to our website, site, Jeez, website, go to our website and, and join us, right? Uh, there's a lot of smart people in there that are smarter than Ken and
0: I that have a lot to say. So this is what happens when the, uh, the days get shorter, you know, and the holidays roll around and start getting kind of, I'm telling you, it's like some kind of fog that you get into. Um, but on this note, you know, talking about IDOR, um, I think. I'd like to bring up my little rant of the day, um, which is discussing code review, code review, the taboo of code review, um, timeline, and man hours spent. Um, so you know my my sort of take on this, Seth. Well, we both have the same take, right? Um, having yeah, done... jump jump into
1: it. Just keep going. Um, yeah, just keep going. I'm
0: I'll be right back. Okay, cool. So when Seth and I give our course, one of the things we talk about, and we get questions from this on students, um, there's always, uh, or there have been a couple, um, in the couple instances, we had a few students per class that were like, um, basically, I get 10 or I get 15 hours to review a web app, um, and it's on some sort of sprint or something along those lines, um, and then I have to move on. And I guess the the way this works is that a scanner runs, some results are produced, and you're the idea is you're supposed to review those results, and that's that is classifying that app as having been code reviewed in a little checkbox, um, and that's complete shit. And Seth and I, have, you know, again, we we walk through our whole code re- review methodology, um, but like one of the there's a few points there. Um, so first of all. A lot of understanding things like idor what we just talked about with uh this whole exploit with um uh, the google api a missed idor finding very difficult to detect um with code review te- uh, tools alone right like i will say with breakman specifically there are um when when certain model objects call something like dot find and pass in user input directly it does at least flag on that but most most uh static analysis tools Aren't very helpful at finding idor, and sometimes the uh, insecure direct object references a couple different things that failed. Um, so, getting back to like understanding these deeper level, like something that's not super obvious, things that are super obvious that you can get out of a ten or fifteen hour uh, kind of code review, uh, code review uh, tool ran a scan, basically is the same crap that you can regex for, right? Like. Maybe some unsafe uh, serialization API gets called, maybe you find some SQL injection, maybe you find uh, some command um, calls and some of the super basic stuff, like maybe if you've got a templating language, you can certainly look for, you know, different dangerous um, template character operators or methods, right? Easy stuff. The problem is, uh, so, so anything that matters though, anything that's contextual, if you've got 10 or 15 hours, like you don't understand what you're looking at and the things that are hard to actually find can't be done in 10 to 15 hours and you're not giving yourself a real code review. What you should do uh, you know, definitely don't call a code review if you're going to do that. If you want to like say, Hey, we, you know, we, we ran this, this essentially this regex check, regex check and send a notification to both your security team and your development team uh, alerting on having found that great but that is not uh, a full code review. That's not um, contextual. It Doesn't help. Um, and that's so. Yeah. So, Ken,
1: just to, just to jump in as, you, as you're going there, this is one thing that I like. I find we do a poor job at um, in security and application security in general is the the classification of what we actually do. Right? There's no standard for what a code review is, like a secure code review. There's no standard for what an you know application assessment actually means. Right. When, when you and I started doing things, it was very much, hey, we're running App Scan and we're Web Inspect, we're checking that, and then we're adding in, you know, these 10 or 15 other things that we're actually going to check for, right? Um, whether that's the OWASP top 10 or what what have you. But we do a pretty poor job of defining what we do in a code review. I mean, we can talk about a course all day long, but that's that, that's kind of that that baseline that everyone has a different definition for. And I think that's what you're going back to is hey, what is it that you're what is it that you're doing? If you, you call this a secure code review and it's actually not, you're
0: doing yourself a disservice and you're doing the company a disservice, right? Right, and part of the review is like, so having like, everybody should have a checklist. You should have a checklist of things you look for. You just should, and you should have an approach, right? Some method- methodology. If you've been doing this long enough, you should. So at least when you um, are doing your review, you can like dump out, uh something that there's a few reasons. One is it shows exactly what you reviewed, gives, like you said, somebody an idea of what a code review actually entails, like the 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 layout of how many of like why it took you it takes some time. Right. Um and then also like a person that comes back um and this happened at work actually as of today um somebody was reviewing an update to a feature I reviewed and had to go back to my notes and was like, Oh, uh, you checked these things. But like, so then I know that these things that were added, I didn't actually, or haven't been reviewed because they didn't exist at the time of your review. So now I know like here's sort of the diff between, between that. Right. Um, to get a comprehensive review, that's going to find some of the most damaging, the things that usually, I mean, okay, there are the cases where someone's just running outdated software, but there are also the times where it's pretty like how many breaches have we seen that are just IDOR related. They're just insecure direct object reference issues and could have been caught with a semi thorough review. Right. Um, But again, relying on a tool to do, you know, Hey, we've got 300 apps uh, that we're reviewing and we only have four people on the team, So this is how we're going to do it. Well, that's crap. Like you absolutely need to prioritize. Like, um and I think we I had this conversation with one one of the students in our class uh who was a manager, and and you know, m- my response to that was you should totally prioritize what apps you care about. I was like, well, we're we're you know, we do X, so we care about them all. And it was like, Yeah, but how many you have you have a finite amount of resources you have to prioritize? Like you just have to. And that's the same thing when we talk about doing code reviews in a 40 versus 80 hour um sort of like timeline you have to prioritize exactly what you're going to review if you're limited on time, but you should at least have enough time. The most important thing is to get the context of the application that you're reviewing. Otherwise these, these sort of like logic flaws, idor, business related abuse cases, those things are, you just have to understand the application and that's a long winded ramp, but
1: no, I like, and, and like, I, I would even step back a little bit from even code reviews to a full application assessment, right? Is if you don't have time to understand what an application does and how it's used, you're never going to actually find those esoteric vulnerabilities, the ones that are more difficult to see, because it's all based on knowing how that application works. Um, and like... I, I still, to this day, still get tossed stuff that people want reviewed in, you know, two to three days. And it's some, you know, a couple hundred thousand lines of code. And there's all these different functions within it. And it, like, it's difficult to actually say, hey, like, I can't actually get through this, right? You can give me uh, you know, that much code and you can give me a couple of things that I can look at. Like I can look at the authentication system, right? I know that there's going to be some sort of authentication, but I'm not going to get I'm not going to be able to find every single instance instance of IDOR because I don't have the time to actually trace that down and I don't have an understanding of the application well enough that to find those edge cases where they probably exist. Um, and it's, it doesn't yeah. matter if it's code review, it doesn't matter if it's an assessment. Right, it's just like an automated tool isn't going isn't necessarily going to give you that same coverage. Sorry, go ahead, Ken.
0: No, I li- I liken it to it's exactly what you said. You got two to three days, and what you and you can hit certain points, but there there are there's a whole range of things. That you can, If you got hundred endpoints and you can you can only trace like the thirty that are the most important. You're you've got seventy unreviewed endpoints, right, or URLs, and it's the same thing. Like I just had painters in my house. And, uh, you know, I, I had there's, I, I had painters this time that were professionals, that I paid well, that took a lot of time, um, and it was difficult because I had to move my entire house around and it took like, you know, we'll say three days, right? Um, in reality, it's like a common, it's like probably like going to be five days, right? I've had painters doing the same, the same or similar rooms before. Um, the same and similar rooms and they did it all in one day care to guess what the cost was differential is pretty significant. There's a big difference, right? But you get what you pay for, I guess is my point. As they came in here for a day, um, they didn't fix the dents in the wall. They didn't fix the nails that were popping from the house having settled. They didn't come through and and make sure that the walls were even. They didn't, you know, do all this, this sanding and prime, you know, no, not, they didn't do two layers of paint. So I got what I paid for and we had to come back and get this repainted because of that. So, uh, but this time I actually spend the money and the time and go through the effort to actually get it done. Right. And it's the same thing with code reviews. It's just, it's very easy with something like that, where you can say like, Oh, I can totally visually ex- uh, understand why I'm, going through this level of effort, I'm paying this amount of money that it is this difficult versus, you know, um, what we do, which is again, going back to documenting everything you, you do so that it's, it's visually you, people understand what you're doing. Um, cause it is so abstract and hard to, to quantify.
1: Yeah. And I like, and actually I found that as I'm like, as I'm performing reviews, right. If I'm not given the time that I feel that I really need with an assessment, um, with a code review specifically, I have a harder time digging in and actually trying to to find vulnerabilities. Right, I think it's just something to do with the fact that I'm like, guess what? I'm not going to be able to actually find the things that I did need, and I'm not. I don't have the time to do it. So it's harder for me to get motivated to jump in and say, all right, we're going to actually, you know, dig in and find what we can, because I know that there's stuff that I'm missing, right? There's almost a psychological aspect, at least for me, that I can't, like, I don't understand all this code, so I'm just doing X, Y, and Z. So does it really matter that I looked at it? Because I'm going to have to come back through at some point, or somebody is to do a full review. And if we don't, then we're, we're all going to miss things.
0: Yeah. And if you're a manager, I mean, you know, one way to, to, I, I can just honestly say, like, I can't imagine you're retaining the top talent if the, the goal is to do the most basic level of coverage to CYA, except for you're not really doing anything other than checking a box, like you know, actually improving your security posture, who's going to want to work there? Like, how are you going to retain talent? You know what I mean? Like, so, yeah, I guess that's sort of my my rant for the, the night on like. And I honestly, I would love to put this into a talk with data points and make it um and make it very clear uh, and 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 use you know like facts and logic and reasoning to um, lay out a case for and, and not even lay out a case, but like make it clear on on why this is so important. Uh, so maybe maybe I don't know. Maybe Seth will we'll talk through that and figure something out.
1: Yeah. Cause it would be interesting, right? Like I, I, like, I think both of us have experience doing, Hey, if I've only got one to two days, this is what I look at, right? This is the value that a company is getting out of an assessment period. Um, or, you know, or from a, from a code review and then base that, you know, compare that with 40 or 80 hours of actually like how much time is spent learning the context of an application. Um, I mean, that's one of the things that we do in our course that I really like is like, we spend so much time profiling an application, figuring out what it does, right? Like ignoring the whole security aspect and um, talking about learning learning what a code base is. Um, there's so much time that's spent on that. And there's so much value that's included in it where it doesn't necessarily fall into a security specific realm. Yeah. We identify some security functions in there, but a lot of the time in a code review and in an assessment is spent familiarizing yourself with an application. So.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, for, to be clear, um, this is, this is something I've ranting about from past experiences, but also more relevant. A friend was kind of complaining about this. And then it made me think about the students we talked to. And I was like, we should address this because like, it is, it is super annoying when I hear about people's experiences where they act like this is some, you know, treating, treating it like a commodity skill. Like it's just something you can just, just throw, yeah. throw, Hey, throw 10 hours at this, you know, it's just not how it works. So anyways, yeah,
1: I'm, I'm going to post a link. Right. Um, what, it's from uh, smartbear.com. Um, it's talking about effective peer code reviews, right? So we, we can extrapolate this out to secure code reviews, but this is just recommendations that are given to developers on how to perform a code a, a peer code review, right? Um, so let me drop this in Slack and on the YouTube channel really quick. Um, it looks the like... The interesting uh, thing I... is that first point right there. So if you pull that up, Ken. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. First point is review fewer than 400 lines of code at a time, right? So, um I, okay, you're never going to as a security co- or a secure code reviewer, you're never going to just review 2 to 400 lines of code. I I don't think that's that's ever been Yeah, that's uh, ever been a although code
0: review. 2 to 400 lines of Ruby code is equivalent to about 10 to 20,000 lines of Java. So, that's true. <laughs> well, that's because you've got all
1: the, the libraries and everything else that, that Ruby does because it's so special. Um, <laughs> but, but like the, the thing from that first point as well, uh, or the second time is right, inspection rates should, should be under 500 lines of code per hour. Um, I, I mean, that's kind of a good rule of thumb when doing a secure code review. 500 lines of code is actually something that you can grok, right? You can figure out, what an application is doing. Um, but the number of times that I've been thrown 200, 300,000 lines of code and given only a few days to actually, you know, review it. Like there's not, I don't have that level of, um, I, I've never been given that level of inspection time, right. Um, or that inspection rate. I I think it, at best, I usually get about a thousand lines of code per hour. Um,
0: yeah. I mean, cause I was doing the math and for, if you were, if you could do like, let's say every hour you're billing, you're doing, um, 500 lines of code, then you're talking about, um, about 40,000 lines of code in a, uh, two week period in an 80 hour uh, period, which is when you get typically as a consultant, especially when you get, uh, two weeks, you're expected to take on site, uh, code bases much larger than that. Let's mm-hmm. be honest. Yep. And um, then there's the assumption that that's, okay, where's the time for report writing? Where's the time for getting to know the application and doing your homework on the tech stack? Because like the tech stack, you have to know what, like, okay, what are the vulnerabilities that are specific to this tech stack? How does it do routing? How does the controller authorization decorators work? You know, how, does the, how do the well, models I mean, enforce certain validations if they are enforcing any, you know, like how do they do... How are they, how does the ORM work? You know, are there any vulnerable calls in that ORM? You know, so now you're... And, yeah, and you're going back to like
1: how how Ruby functions, like what middleware is being used? Because normally the, you know, the lines of code is the custom lines of code. It's not anything like any third-party code that they're depending on um, that has a significant security impact on that application.
0: So. and uh Toller mentions a good point here, which is like when you 're going head to head like this this goes down to like the uh the whole um i would, i presume anyways like the whole consulting um winning business part sorry sales um and when you 're going against a company that 's saying like we can do Specifically you wrote says there's also folks that deliver those web inspect reports as assessment results. And if you're competing against that speed, explaining the value is tough on an initial engagement. And I, I absolutely agree. Like it is um it is difficult to it's something you and I have done over and over again as explain that value. Um in our cons well, I guess you're still doing consulting, but in my consulting day. Um and like Yes. It's very hard because you'll get, you'll get low ball. You get folks at a low ball. First of all, um, at like a much lower rate, they'll say they can do it for half the time. And it's just like, it's just like the painter situation I was talking about. You know, it's, you get what you pay for.
1: Yep. Um,
0: and so you have to explain your value, uh, in a way that people can understand, like, there's a difference between you finding something like this person finding something easy and also like, it ever getting fixed. There's the one, there's the one part of us finding things. And there's other part that like, you have to explain, first of all, you have to hand something to people that's actionable, that's prioritized, that has good recommendations, something they can act on. And if you hand them a big report with nothing prioritized with false positives all over the place, you're actually causing more cost in the long run for their development team. And that's if you ever want to have a selling point that's 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 one of them is you can reduce the amount of cost on the um the and burden on the business to actually like take care of your shit results um or well, some and of we've those... all de- yeah yeah and we've all dealt with that before right like we've dealt with the development
1: teams that don't that don't want to deal with security because that's all they're given is hey here's a report from an automated tool like you know I know I bag on Fortify and AppScan quite a bit. I, I mean, they they do a decent job at identifying things, but the number of false positives that they come out with, especially if they haven't been tuned, are ridiculous, right? Uh, no developer has time to comb through twenty five to 30,000 findings in a week, right? They just can't do that. Um, but that is the reason why development and ops and everybody like looks down on security is because we're not necessarily enabling them to make more secure code. We're actually adding more work to their workload without giving them a reasonable way to go about fixing it. Um, And, you know, without some sort of expertise, without somebody that's actually digging in and providing those results, it's just never going to happen. Yeah.
0: Anyway. But it's not all bleak there are good clients out there there are folks that understand the value and what you provide there are folks that have developers totally um on board and wanting you to find things and uh also side note you should always ask developers what they're most concerned about when you're doing those calls when you're when you're gauging an app you should always ask developers um what are you most worried about because usually developers have a pretty usually at least there's some With good developers, there's uh, some notion of what they should be concerned about. And it's a good... I think you've talked about this, Seth, for sure. Um, Yeah. yeah.
1: No, like, yeah, a good developer. Like, if you're scoping out an application and you want to know where the dirty laundry is, right? Or, you know, after you start an application, ask the developers. I mean, if you have a good rapport with them and you're like, hey, man, I I know you're probably not given enough time to fix everything that you want, where do you have concerns from a security perspective? Those lead developers will tell you in a second because they're never given the, the actual cycles. I mean, we talk, this goes back to like a two-week sprint. They're never, give, never given the cycles to actually go back through a lot of that where they do have concerns. And they're usually going to be helpful in pointing you in the right direction. Uh, because they want they want actionable results as well. They don't want another report that's not going to help them that they're not going to be able to fix. They they want to take pride in their work. I mean, I've I've never met a developer that just didn't care. Right, that's a very creative process, and they're they're usually pretty invested. It's usually the opposite. Right, you walk in and say they have SQL injection, and you just you know. You just told them that their mom is ugly, right? That or their baby is, you know, is is yeah. deformed, right? That's really how how they take it, right? They take it very personally, and they you need to be an ally to them, even yeah. as a consultant.
0: Yeah, and there's no golden rule. Some uh, everybody's different. Every developer's uh, different. But um, you're right. It's usually I, I I find a lot less apathy than I do, um, sort of uh, it being very. But you're right, also in the fact like. They're constrained just the, in the way that we are too. There's time constraints on 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 them as well, and there's certainly things where I'm like, I, I, yeah, I've written code where I'm like, oh man, I wish I had more time to to go back and do these things because and focus on these things because like I know that I, there's something that's that could break, you know. But you're just getting it done, and uh, that's that's the reality. It's not. Um, it's just mistakes happen, and that's why we're here. And everybody needs, everybody needs a little bit of time. Some. Uh, you know, so um, the other thing I wanted to, or I kind of wanted to switch to was Equifax. Okay. Talk a little bit about that ex- Equifax report that came out. Um, Justin Larson, as a matter of fact, was the one, who, or sorry, Evan Johnson was the one who originally linked it. Um, but uh, I think there were a couple points that um, that Justin and some other folks uh, brought out. So do you want to talk through that a little bit? Sure. Um,
1: you want to post up the, the report. So it's basically yeah. from the house of Rep- or the house right that's where it is oversight.house.gov um so it's quite long right um something you know
0: U- u.s house days. of Rep- Rep- reps committee on o- oversight and government reform
1: there you go yep so and i mean and this probably goes back to the fact that equifax is a pseudo government organization, right? Um, or at least they've got some sort of ties into the government and they want to make sure that our data is protected. So they're looking into what actually happened and yeah, it's a hundred pages or so you can read all of the specifics, but the executive summary in and of itself is pretty telling um, about Equifax and the deficiencies that existed when the the breach actually happened um right I mean, like first of all, right off the bat uh what was it um
0: the three hundred tri- security certificates
1: yeah uh, the three hundred outdated security certificates that were found um and it was mandian that did the, the the an actual the actual analysis forensic analysis uh on the breach uh if you don't know who Mandian is, you know go look them up there as security um Consulting firm, and they see they always there's a few of them that always seem to be involved in the forensics around breaches. Um, But the one that I actually wanted to call out uh, yeah, okay, so there's 300, um, you know, expired certificates that that they were actually able to find. Um, The attacker sent something like 9,000 queries against 48 databases over the course of what? Um, how many months was it? I uh, think it was. To,
0: yeah, it was. It wasn't the longest period, but yeah, it was enough to get. Um, for, um, it says here somewhere on the uh, amount of like da- PII that was actually stolen. It was. Uh, it was crazy, and <laughs> oh man! And so they they were able to access forty eight uh, other databases outside of the 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 PII the database holding the PII, they did this, they used a web shell. Uh, yeah, so it says, by the way, it set 9,000 queries on 48 databases uh, locating the unencrypted personally identifiable information data 265 times. Um, what's crazy is that, uh, let's see, the x they said so they didn't, <laughs> oh man, this just gets, so, the, the, the device used to monitor their network traffic had been that would have caught this had been inactive for 19 months. Um, and that was due to an expired security certificate. Yep. Um, and then. So, so, yeah. So, let's see. OK. Um, so, the, the attackers began the
1: attack on May 13th. And they didn't notice, Equifax didn't notice it until July 29th because they finally went and updated that expired certificate, right? So they saw the suspicious web traffic to that web shell that had been uploaded um, on the 13th. So what, that's May, June, July. So it's only like two and a half months, but that's more than enough time to actually export all that information. right? And that's, that's where we, we get into the issues is that, yeah, like it was, it was long gone by the time they actually detected it.
0: I think what's interesting is they um, Equifax actually did what's, if there's any solace to take out of this, is that they actually did contact the FBI. Um, because if you get... If you haven't knowing ongoing... If you know of a like a breach is underway or you've been breached or something, you're actually supposed to, if you're, you know, obviously a US-based US company, you're actually supposed to talk to the FBI. They've got a whole cyber division for this. Um, what? Does, does that always happen? Absolutely not. But if you get the FBI involved, they... Your information is going to end up out there. You have to accept that. You you now are allowing the government to come in there, but um, from what I understand, it's super helpful in actually pursuing action. They have a good team, um, and it's just something you should do. And I I think in that, I think the Equifax is right to do that, and and that's one of the like pieces of silver lining here. However, I think when you read this report, because it talks about like having overly aggressive. Uh, growth leading to a overly complex IT system that is woefully, woefully in terms of being monitored, in ter- terms of having the staff, in terms of even knowing their network, just totally not. Just it's it's, it's terrible. I mean, it, the story the story this paints is bad, um, and I think that if it, it harkens back to reading the Phoenix Project, that's what I thought the the, the second. I, I read this summary here of uh, this, this very, very, very long report. Um, so you for those people that aren't,
1: yeah, no, no, I do. But you know, like, why do you find that right? Like kind of draw the parallels there between um, what Equifax did and what, what's actually in the Phoenix project.
0: Well, like for one, for, for one um, let's talk about the outdated systems that couldn't be updated because they were so outdated. I mean, I think one of the interesting points was that I believe that some of the systems they mentioned were implemented in the 70s. Let's start there. And that's definitely, you know, in the Phoenix project, they talk about having only this set of people that can work on these machines, but they really can't update them. Uh, They're super fragile and brittle. Um, And I feel like that's that's what we're talking about right here is the super fragile and brittle system that probably only a handful of people have an expertise in and uh, needs to be updated uh, to be a little bit more rugged.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, that harkens back to like mainframe systems for sure. And, and any, I mean, if you've been in the industry and you've dealt with any large financial institution that's been around for, you know, decades, you are going to run into this exact scenario. Um, I can't tell you the number of times that I've, you know, done assessments on banks, and they just basically, hey, that's not in scope. Uh, we can't actually do anything about it. We don't have the code for that anymore because somebody compiled it and put it on the, uh, you know, put it on the mainframe, so we can't actually make fixes or patches to it. And that that application is going to run because it's more important than anything else that we do here, right? Um,
0: yeah. And you, you see here that they they mention that there is a legacy modernization effort underway. Unfortunately, it's coming during the breach, or really when it's completed is af well after the breach. And, and and it's the same, it's the same thing they talk about in the book. And the book is an example of like modern corporate this, right? So like yeah, they, they do have at least an effort to improve that. Yeah. But in terms of managing these various systems. It's just, I mean, they talk about in the report, this isn't, these isn't my, these aren't my words. This is reading directly off the report where it's like, basically there's no accountability. People don't know in terms of leadership who owns what. Um, yeah. So uh, Equifax failed to fully appreciate and mitigate its cybersecurity risk. <sighs> um, just the, and again, not what I'm saying. I'm reading directly off the page. Um yeah, so there was a management problem in IT, um, but there was also a business issue where they were being overly aggressive, and so there were limitations on what could get done. So it's just kind of a, so just when you read this, it's just a mix of different things going wrong um, as a business, and then you know a security breach happens on top of that.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, one thing that I do want to call out, like we're we're, you know, we're looking over the Equifax, like the results of the Equifax report, right? Um, I don't necessarily like, you know, I, I find it good that they've actually called out the aggressive growth strategy and that, you know, the, um, the old, like the antiquated systems that it's not necessarily the people that are working there right now. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen a grifter, uh, Neil actually talk, Ken. Um, I mean, he's local to me here. He runs DC 801 a one, but he, he's also one of the guys that, you know, He's one of the main organizers of DEF CON, right? And he's been doing that and running the Black Hat Network for years. But one of the things that he always calls out is that, um, like, we have a tendency to not support the people that are in the trenches as an industry. Um, Like, this report definitely does because it says, look – It's not on the security guys that were there, right? Yes, they probably should have updated that certificate, but most likely they weren't given the time to actually do what they should have been doing, right? Um, But as an industry, we have a tendency to be like, oh, crap, look at that breach. How did that happen? And then we're like, okay, are we good, right? Am I okay? Does this affect me? And if it doesn't, then there's a lot of finger pointing and we're like, ha, 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 we're going to pile on. And we're going to be like, hey, you guys suck. And, you know, that person should be fired and X, Y, and Z, right? Um, when realistically, we don't have a full picture of what's going on within the organization and the support that the security team is getting or the product security team or whoever is getting to actually fix those vulnerabilities, right? We just talked about code reviews and how we don't give um, the security team enough time to actually perform an assessment. I, like, you know, yeah, this was struts in this case, right? Right. Um, but obviously they weren't like Equifax, the, the guys that should have been scanning that network for stress vulnerabilities were never given the opportunity to go through and do that.
0: Well, in all the application security managers that we've interviewed on this podcast and asked for their 30, 60, 90 day plan, I'd say most of them talk about relationship building. And I think that that goes to it, what you just said, where, you do that because you do want the business to care about what your security team's doing and to take it seriously. If they choose to not do that, if they choose to prioritize this over that, what can you do? But you can certainly advocate for your team and advocate for certain things for you to be included when, you know, new features or new products are being developed or major changes are being made. Um, and building those relationships so, so that people do reach out to you, even if, you know, like the formal process has slipped up and missed something, somebody reaches out to you. I think that that's ultimately what they're trying to do. However, no matter how good of a manager you are and no, how, no matter, you know, how well you've built those relationships, you're right. I mean, it could be that, oh, well, like this time, this is not the priority. This, this other thing is, is the priority. You know, we, we need to do this X, Y, Z on these dates and we understand the risks and we take it on and, you know, you, you, you can lay it out and present the case and build it up, but doesn't mean anybody has to listen. So yep. the assumption being that they did something wrong is, is, is wrong. Yeah.
1: And I, I mean, I, I do think that we're getting better at that, right? Like we've got a, a lot more focus on blue teams, right? And actually, defensive measures and you know the ability to scan, but then you know we hear from you know other people in the consulting world about you know three days to do a code review on an application that they've never seen before, and I, I, that doesn't harken back to uh, the company actually taking security seriously, right? No, it, it, it's it's a checkbox, it's a compliance check, and it doesn't necessarily equate to to real security, um, you know, they may, and the company may get away with it for a long time until they do get hit by a breach like Equifax did. Um, but at some point that's going to come about, come around and bite them. Um,
0: yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. You know, so that's why you also have to kind of play this game of like um, in your career, you know, being a little bit choosy where you work too. Right. Um, Cause as you, progress you, and, and there's more and more responsibility on your shoulders. You have to be choosy about where you invest your, your, your energy and your time. Cause you you want that to be a, you know, mutually beneficial relationship, but also that you can avoid ending, ending up, you know, being on the, the front page of wired or tech crunch or whatever, or not dark reading, something like that. <laughs> Take your pick medium nowadays, right? Medium. There you go. Oh yeah. Medium. Sorry. Yeah
1: whichever one it is or on pace bin yeah Yeah, like and i don't know i i just like as i read through that report that's that's what it makes me feel for is those guys that are in the trenches that are just like oh man what now right um even though those are the guys that we probably should be hiring hey guess what we've been through this we know that this is an issue. Like if you if you want to walk somebody in and be like, hey, they were there during the Equifax breach when it actually happened, that may that would be an interesting interesting perspective to have talking to your executives, right? Um, about what the real consequences are of ignoring you or ignoring yeah. the security team. So
0: if you think identifying all the websites that your company has running is difficult imagine doing all of that handling all of that infrastructure monitoring it all and when a certificate expires knowing you know it's just a very difficult job which just a very difficult job so yeah. yeah yeah but i I don't i reading this it does not feel like necessarily a um it feels more like a like when you read it like there's more of a yeah, or def- that is definitely what it feels
1: like, right? As they just weren't ever given the time. I mean, the the whole three hundred certificates that are out of date, um, and then what, like eighty of them, seventy nine of them were for monitoring business business critical domains, right? Um, just uh, yeah, it's, it, it's a lack of real oversight and leadership in yeah, in the security space, and probably the IT space as well. But you're going to find that in any large organization. I don't think Equifax is that. It, I don't feel like they are an outlier, right? Yeah, they got burned this time, but we see the number of breaches that are coming, and somebody
0: else is going to be next. Yeah, no. Um, I mean, just imagine we—we've all tried to get systems updated to like we're talking about in the relative scheme of things, fairly minor updates of like libraries and, and whatever frameworks, language updates, whatever. And and imagine you've got this ACIS system from 1970, um, built in the 1970s, running Apache Struts. It was probably a miracle they got Apache Struts running on there to begin with, let alone some updated version. So you can only imagine what that, if there was a battle, what that would have felt like if they had, you know, tried to, to, to get it updated, I guess. Yeah. If Lord, it was even- uh,
1: exactly. I mean, Ken had a, yeah, he was saying, yeah, we'd rather um, we'd rather fire the security people that were there when the breach happened and that, and that, you know, we typically look for a scapegoat, but we yeah. choose the wrong scapegoat is really what I, I mean that's what Neil is trying to say as we're choosing the non-scapegoat. You just paid a huge price to actually teach your security team how to act in a, you know, in a fire, right? Like an absolute dumpster fire. And then you're gonna go and fire the leader that's actually led them through it because he happened to be the CISO or whatever it is. That's the wrong way to look at it right? At that point, I would think that's the guy that you want to make sure stays on staff. So it doesn't happen again. Um,
0: anyway, yeah. that
1: yeah, we, we are definitely going down rants
0: today, aren't we? <laughs> yeah. tonight's the, the night of ranting. It yeah. is the season. No, Tis actually season. Sean was uh, going to join us tonight. Um, and I actually, it turns out Seth, I haven't really, he was, he had emailed us during the, uh, the podcast saying that he could join, but uh, we were in the middle of it already, but uh, we'll get him rescheduled on here. And if you're not familiar with Sean, uh, Sean, he, he works, he's the AppSec uh, essentially lead, right? At uh, Oath, he runs Bug Bounty and product security pieces for Oath and formerly AOL. And he ran like global, global AppSec at AOL.
1: Yeah, yeah, Sean's a good guy. Uh, he's got an interesting perspective where he's not as technical, his URI has definitely come up more through kind of the management track uh, and been running teams and trying to implement product security. So it'd be interesting to see uh, like what his experience is with that large organization, especially as AOL and Yahoo have merged, um, how to build that out, you know, running a, you know, a, a large scale bug bounty program. Uh, I mean, GitHub is is pretty big from a bug bounty perspective, but, Oaths is pretty huge because of the number of properties that it it covers. It's not just Yahoo and you know AOL, but it's all their mail sites and everything else that they do. TechCrunch, Huffington Post, all that stuff. So it'll be it'll be fun to talk to him about how that all happens. Um, you know, maybe we'll do like a half hour, you know, in a couple nights to actually you know bring him on, or we can reschedule him another time.
0: So yeah, that sounds good. Also, I am having to figure out why this camera angle is not switching. Uh, so I'm just manually switching it right now, uh, for when we talk anyways. Oh, um, so did you want to wrap up with anything? we for over an hour here and we can call it, I think.
1: Um,
0: not, no, I, I mean, I did want to call out, uh, at Cali.
1: Um, you know, that's what the third week in January, it's coming up soon. Uh, we are doing our secure code review, course. Um, Come and you know, come and attend that. Uh, it's a good price for the secure code review course. Uh, we'll be there for the conference as well. Um, I think that's really the only thing that's on my my docket right now. I don't necessarily have any other conferences on my on my radar yet. Um, you know, we have like submitted to a couple of places. I uh, B side Salt Lake City is in February. Um, I'm sure I'll be there. Uh, but other than that, I don't have a lot that's I haven't identified any others that I necessarily have, have submitted to. So what about you, Ken, if
0: you have anything on your list? Uh, No. um, Besides what I've submitted with you, um, other than this idea today of like wanting to promote, basically build a talk that with, that people can point to their, the businesses and say, or whoever they need to point to it and say like, here is a uh, good, here's a talk that at least lays out what code review code reviews consist of and assessments and stuff like that and why it should take some time and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, nothing else. Uh, i trying to think of anything else. I got the t-shirts. Uh, I think you mailed out some t-shirts to some folks already. Yeah.
1: Yep. And so we'll keep, we'll, we'll keep sending those along. Um, like you said, hit us up on Twitter or on Slack for you know, sizes and locations as we send them out. And but otherwise, uh, you know, we'll be back on next week, uh, trying to I, even remember who our who our guest Will,
0: is next week. Oh, it's, gonna it's be Will, Will Kingston. Yeah,
1: awesome. And that'll be our last one for the year. That'll wrap up season one of Absolute AppSec, uh, and then we'll we'll kick off again. I think it's. Uh, yeah, the eighth of January with the guys from Segment, uh, so that should be fun as well. But um, next next week will be our last episode for this for this year. Um, we may we may throw in some extra ones. You know, we'll talk to Sean. We'll see when we can actually get him on uh, to talk through things. Otherwise, you know, thanks for being a part of Absolute AppSec. You know, during the first season, and hit us up. Find us on on the interwebs and we'll, we'll chat. Thanks everybody. Have a good night.